You're listening to the Names Not Numbers podcast with me, Julia Hobsbawm of Names Not Numbers and Editorial Intelligence in association with the Financial Times. We're going to talk about the first bright idea. It's, the question is, how real is real? Now, Molly is one of our greatest documentary filmmakers, and I'm not just saying that because she's married to my brother, though she is. Uh, she actually is objectively one of the country's greatest documentary filmmakers and one of the earliest proponents of, I don't know what I would call it, I want to say something like real-life films because I can't bear to say reality TV because it's been so corrupted uh, since you began. Observation. Observational documentaries, thank you. She's done whole series on different subjects, uh, hereditary peers, the British Army in Northern Ireland... Farmers, impoverished rural farmers, the London Zoo, tube workers. But because we've only got eight minutes, we're going to talk about a very short film that she made about Tony Blair. Back in 1997, it was used as a party election broadcast in the 97 election campaign. Now, just to give you a bit of context, uh, in 92, there was rather a good film made about Neil Kinnock, who was then leader of the Labour Party, by Hugh Hudson, you may, may remember him up on the cliffs with wind blowing, not in his hair because he didn't have any, but uh, <laughs> uh, it, it, was a, it was a new technique in, in political campaigning. And so come 97, I think the Labour Party thought, people don't really know Tony Blair, he's very, very new to the political scene, we need to tell voters what he's like as a person, we need to hire someone from outside advertising, outside politics, someone who is used to drawing people out on TV and one way or another, it came to you, Molly, didn't it? Via Richard Eyre. Via Richard Eyre. Richard Eyre was actually a proper director. He was asked from the National Theatre to do this portrait of Blair because nobody knew who he was. And he said, actually, I think it should be somebody who makes documentaries. He felt that I should do an interview with Blair. So it wasn't a film about Blair, remember? It was pure... It was selling him. It was a party political broadcast. And I spent about three months... Impossible, because I'd been asked to do something, but I had no access to him. He was permanently in shadow cabinets, aeroplanes, cars. And finally, after a very, Can I, very... So I'm just going to interrupt. Yeah. Can you hear at the back? Yeah, yeah. yeah OK, good. Um, Keep looking forwards rather than so at me. <laughs> after trying to explain to Alistair Campbell, actually, in order for me to do what I do, I've got to be with him, because I've got to actually see him and talk to him. And actually, God forbid, we have to have a relationship of sorts, because that's what comes out in these sorts of films. And we'll just show, I thought we should just show a very quick clip from the broadcast, which is Tony in the Kitchen, which was actually made up the bulk of the broadcast, which ended up being a ten-minute film called Tony the Movie. <laughs> so it's the first clip. Now, it was quite a struggle for you to be allowed in his house in the first place, let alone to be allowed to film his kids, wasn't it? Well, I think the problem for him was that he'd been thrown into the front line. He was supposed to try and present himself as a prime minister. Nobody really knew how he should be coming across. But what I was trying to do was just to try and get to the core of him, trying to get to a side of him. Well, we were talking earlier about connections, to try and make people connect with him by showing him as realistically as possible. Now, th that was the most realistic part of the party election broadcast, I think, him in his kitchen with his kids. But actually, how real was that, and how much was it acted? It was quite silly, because me and Sarah and he were in the kitchen. Sarah's your sound. Was the sound recorder. He wasn't sure how he should come across on a broadcast, but it was three months in, and he'd said to Alistair Campbell repeatedly, why does she keep needing to be around? I thought, you know, why can't we just do a piece to camera? And 
I was trying to, I suppose, just stop him, deliver pieces of policy into the lens. And so I was trying to be in a situation where we would just be relaxed together. But there's a, the next clip, in fact, shows the manipulation of it, which was me trying to manoeuvre around the kitchen, getting him to relax and talk to me. But this, I should say, but this one and the next one are outtakes. They weren't actually in the, in the election broadcast. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, but I just wanted to show that clip because of the kind of ludicrous dance that goes on and apparently very natural observational films um, because it was so difficult for him to know how to, well, to relax. But actually, by the end of it, I think he felt very comfortable about the whole sequence that had happened in the kitchen and got quite interested in the process because he sort of got it about how, um, how I wanted to work and why I'd been asked to do it. And the, the point of this last clip, for which I really apologise, and I am so embarrassing in it, I am not good on camera, but he is filming me because he has now gone into full workshop mode to discuss <laughs> these sort of films and how it is that people come across. So... <laughs> is that it? I'm going to ask you one more question. <laughs> I just love that clip. I've seen it several times. I think it's fantastic. Um, Molly, just looking back now, God, what is it? It's 16 years on. Mm. Do you feel you did get the measure of him? I did then. And what I'd love to do is do a film with him now. I'd like to use the early rushes and then film him now. So pre and post power. Not about what he did or didn't do, but just about the state of being in charge and what he'd thought it was going to be. And I think also you can see what's torturous for him is um, he'd been told all the time not to do the very thing I was trying to get him to do. And I suspect that's where he is again now. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Pleasure. Molly. Stay here. Stay here. Thank you. Now I'm going to introduce Hannah Rothschild, who is uh, also a filmmaker, a very good filmmaker and author. And she made a wonderful film and, and written a book about her rebellious, jazz-loving great-aunt, Nika, who fell in love with Thelonious Monk. Hannah. Thank you. Right. I've been given so many emails about how this has got to be less than eight minutes. <laughs> so I'm quite scared now. Um, so individuality, can we have the first slide, please? Or, oh, no, I've got a thing in my pocket. Hang on. That's what I'm supposed to be doing. There we go. Here we are. Individuality and rebellion. Well, my, my kind of absolute firm belief is that if you're over 25, which most of us in this room are, that's it. You're unlikely to be <laughs> either particularly individual or particularly rebellious. Now, of course, you can come and give me lots and lots of um, examples of why that isn't the case. But my feeling is that as we grow older, we start concentrating on other things. We have careers, we have families, we get into gardening, we write memoirs, <laughs> uh, we might even turn to God. And um, I think that it's very unusual that, that anyone in this room is likely to do something very dramatically different in their life. However, there are exceptions, and perhaps this woman is one of them. So her name, she was born Pannonica Rothschild, and she was my great-aunt. And at the time of this photograph, she was nearly 40. Uh, she had five children. Um, she was very, very spoiled. She was married. She was rich. Um, she had absolutely no education whatsoever. And she lived abroad. And I think that those things add up probably to a profile of someone who is very unlikely to change their life and change who they are. Um, and that's what it should have been. But one day, somebody played her a record. 
And she said that this record was like a vinyl version of a spell being cast on her. And at that minute, she threw in every single thing that she knew. She left her children, she left her husband, she left her country. Um, she left everything she knew and she went across the world to live in New York. So what happened and what were the seeds and when were they laid for this strange and sudden departure from everything she knew? Well, I think that there were definite things in her childhood that we can look back to which might help us understand. Now... <laughs> what do you mean, you don't have zebras? <laughs> Doesn't everybody? <laughs> so, she... <laughs> don't try this at home. Um, so this is great-uncle Walter. Um, and uh, she, she grew up um, a member of this Rothschild family, this illustrious family, but, and who had quite strange habits. And one of them, they found it much easier to have connections with animals. And her father and her great un her uncle Walter, um, for example, he just thought it was more amusing to go to the local shop in a cart pulled by zebra than pulled by ponies. Um, and they had in the park, they had kangaroos and ostriches as opposed to deer and all that stuff. The thing was, they were Jews and they were outsiders. And Nika, the young Nika, was not invited to stay or play with any neighbours because she was not one of us. And they were told that quite simply. So they grew up as outsiders. They didn't have the normal connectedness that many of us have. The second thing that happened was that due to intermarriage, probably, and as Dennis Stevenson rightly said earlier on, we use these terms much too widely and broadly, but the system of intermarriage in my family created an absolutely appalling time bomb, which came out in mental instability. And it's something that hasn't really been talked about till now because, as we all know, there is incredible shame around this. But her father was just one member of the family who suffered from what was loosely termed schizophrenia. And she lived under the shadow of this very, very debilitating and frightening illness. Um, and I think that, again, is something that laid its seeds later on. Um, here she is as a young debutante. Now... Again, she was brought out, she came out, but in fact, of course, she could never meet a husband in this marriage market because there weren't that many other Jews going to uh, coming out parties. But what she did meet when she came to coming out parties were, well, what she heard was jazz because at that time, there was the most unbelievable jazz. We're talking about the 1930s in England. So you had people like Duke Ellington came to play at Miss Smithson's Smythe Ponsonby's coming out party. And her first great love was a jazz uh, musician Another lover of hers, um, a saxophonist who played with the Savoy Orphans, taught her how to fly an aeroplane. Um, and really what jazz was, was it was her first association with freedom. And this is another very, very important thing, we think, to that record, which changed everything. She married a handsome baron. There he is on the left. James Cagney seems to have got himself in the middle, but that, don't worry about that. That's just a kind of, He's not really part of this story. Um, and she married the baron. The baron, you know, was for a fatherless girl. He was very authoritative, authoritarian, and she mistook that for love. And she left him eventually, she said, not just because she heard round midnight, but because he liked drum music, which, of course, is rather an eccentric reason to give for a marriage breaking down. Um, the couple, while they were married, settled in this spectacular house in Normandy. And um, she set up as a kind of typical chatelaine. It's exactly, I'm sorry, you can't see that, can you? Exactly what you would have expected. It was servants, it was tea parties, it was changing your things, it was, you know, all the trappings. 
And probably, had World War II not broken out and had she not had to become politicised, things might have gone on like they were. But actually, she was in France and she got out, in fact, the day before the Nazis arrived at the chateau. She managed somehow to get out. And although the Rothschild family were very, very lucky, they had money, they had connections, so only two of them actually were caught in France at the time. They went to Auschwitz, they went to Birkenau, and that was the end of their particular story. Her Hungarian relations had a much, much worse time. And when she arrived in England, they heard the terrible news that her great-aunt had been taken to Auschwitz. And because she was blind and 80, she couldn't follow the instructions that the camp commandant gave her, so they beat her to death with meat hooks. It was very difficult, therefore, I think, to remain completely unpoliticised, even as an ill-educated debutante. On the other side of the world, in a completely different circumstances, a young man called Thelonious Monk was born, um, not necessarily in this house, but certainly on this road. This is Rocky Mount, North Carolina. And, of course, though, what on earth could a young, poor black man have in common with a rich, white heiress? Well, funnily enough, one of the things I believe they had in common were very strong mothers and fathers who suffered from an appalling version or type of schizophrenia. And both these young people grew up escaping into jazz, loving jazz, one of them in America, one of them in Europe, but also under the spectre of this terrible form, this terrible, terrible illness. Um, what do we know about Monk? Well, if we're going to talk about individuality and rebelliousness, he had it you know, through and through. This was someone who, for most of his life, nobody wanted to buy his records, nobody wanted to hear him play. They ridiculed him as a guy who couldn't play the piano. He never deviated from one iota from his primary love, which was jazz and his particular style of playing it. When she actually heard that record, she moved immediately to New York uh, to go and find him. Ironically, she couldn't find him at that minute because he'd been struck off. He was also a drug user and um, he'd been busted and he'd lost the right to play for seven years. So she spent a few years kind of getting to know him, getting to know his friends before she was actually able to meet him which she then did in Paris. She had to fly to Paris to actually get to see him. Now, he was the son of a schizophrenic, and he had himself a terrible, terrible mental illness. And this was exacerbated by the life of a musician who lived on the road, who had to go on tour, and um, you know, had to face the hardships that black Americans had to face at that time. But she said that he was, in a way, the answer to all her prayers. And she said, if there are seven wonders in the world, Monk was the eighth. And he provided the soundtrack. His music somehow transformed her and made sense of a life that she felt until that moment was absolutely discordant. And when Monk, as he got older and he got sicker and sicker, and he stopped playing, and actually even his own family rather abandoned him at that moment because they thought the breadwinner had gone off the boil, if you like, um, she took him in and she devoted really her entire life to him. And she did see us, she did see the rest of her family and we'd go to New York on kind of pilgrimages. But she remained absolutely committed to this new way of life and this man. And she said, it really has, you know, it wasn't an act of rebellion. She said, he gave me a life. He gave me a life and I'd never had one before. When she died, she left very, very strict instructions in her will. And the instructions were that she had to be, her, she was going to be cremated and that her ashes were going to be scattered. And it was incredibly important that it was done at the right time. And the right time for her was round midnight. Thank you. Aww.
Hannah, that was fascinating. No time for discussion about it, I'm afraid, um, or I'm going to be running late. But the book is called The Baroness, right? It is, yeah. Yes, if you want to read more about Nika. Now, I'm going to introduce Charlie Ledbetter. Where is Charlie? Here you are. Great. Please come up. Who is really a professional generator of bright ideas. That's probably the best way I can describe you, isn't it? Um, he's author of We Think, Mass Creativity, Not Mass Production. And he is contributor number 003 to this panel. He's going to talk about why and when he actually likes being a number rather than a name. Well, um, first of all, Hannah, that was a fantastic spellbinding uh, talk about how people make connections. And I had a very strange experience listening to Molly talk because it was a bit like Crossrail going through London in the sense that it excavated deep and rather dark memories for me. Uh, one of which was that I was commissioned to ghostwrite a book for Tony Blair. I was actually paid money. I had three interviews, one of which was a, an interview at Chequers where he was still wearing pyjamas. But by that stage, I'd already seen John Prescott wearing lycra, so that wasn't so much of a shock. Um, but I remember the turning point of the project was an hour-long meeting in Downing Street, which basically went like this for an hour. He said, if we could just get the title right, the book will write itself. <laughs> and I would say, don't you think we need to work out what the book is about? And then the title will emerge from that. <laughs> no, we've got to get a team on the title. And I left that meeting with my head shaking, um, as uh, often people do, I suppose. So um, when we set off this morning, I should have realised, of course, that the prime speaking slot, the slot that would set the tone for the you know, two days proceedings, uh, the prime intellectual uh, uh, territory would have been taken already by a Johnson. That a Johnson would already have occupied that slot. Mm -hmm. And of course, Leo did it so brilliantly, setting out the namist orthodoxy that we all follow here, that we should feel rather than count and we should touch our cows and look at their tongues. <laughs> that I thought, well, crikey, I'm at the end of the day. What do I do? So the only option I decided was to go in the other direction, as ever, and that I would talk about why I want to be a number, not a name. Um, now, the reason I want to be a number, not a name, is partly because I've got a very stupid name. Um, my name is too long. It doesn't fit on many forms, but that's not the real problem. The real problem is that my name opens me to all sorts of forms of abuse. One is that it's misspelt and mispronounced. First piece I ever wrote for the FT, the byline was misspelt. The first piece I ever wrote for The Guardian, the same thing. So in a way, I feel as if I'm sort of undercover because no one knows my real name because it's constantly misspelt and mispronounced. Worse than that, it's not a unique signifier. So Charles Leadbeater, if you type that into Google, you get a lot of hits because half of them belong to Charles Webster Leadbeater, who was the founder of Theosophy. Now, Charles Webster Leadbeater's ideas were so weird that even Demos would not have printed one of his pamphlets. Um, and so, um, but of course, the real problem was that give my name to, say, 240 fellow 14-year-olds in a comprehensive school, and it was like daily slaughter. Mm -hmm. So I am a slightly sceptical of my name, but I'm also extremely glad that I have lived in an era and a time 
when, for instance, I can simply walk up to a hole in the wall and type in 9334 or 1224 or even the rather problematic 5672, which brings the debt collectors often, and money just comes out into my hands, life-affirming, renewing money. I'm very pleased that I can type in N52EJ into Google Maps and it will generate a little route for me so I never get lost and I never have to go through that whole process which reveals my grasp of the alphabet isn't very good of looking up the name of a road in an A to Z. And I travel, of course, in EN10KYR. And so I'm also glad that all these numbers give me access to systems that otherwise would be impenetrable. So when I travel, I'm 09909 or I'm sort code 301127, or I'm 354544 to BT, and of course, crucially, 07970488665. But numbers, of course, aren't just access codes. Numbers are sort of little heuristics. So my day often starts with my balance appearing on my mobile phone, and then I will step onto the scales, hoping that I'm close to 75. Um, and the last two decades, I have watched in wonder as my waist has expanded by roughly two inches every five years until it was halted by a particularly vicious stomach bug that I picked up in the Lebanon. So numbers are a kind of heuristic and a kind of measure of well-being, but they're also, of course, they contain emotion. All my passcodes are the birthdays of my wife or my children. Uh, I love the fact that we live in three Aberdeen Lane, which we built together. Um, I can uh, remember key dates. October the 31st, the first snog. It was a snog, not a kiss. Uh, June the 10th, the subsequent wedding, several years later, admittedly. Um, and, of course, there's row 19, seat 298, where I spend enormous sums of money to watch Arsenal Football Club get worse and worse and worse each season. So numbers can contain emotion. Now, I know that none of that is really the point. I know that Leo's point is that we measure too much, and when we start measuring things, we fix them and contain them, and that the most important things in life can't really be priced or measured, and that they're dynamic and free-flowing, and that love and care and friendship cannot be measured in any way. And so if anyone ever comes up in future with that cliche, you cannot manage what you cannot measure, I'm going to hit them, because it's the, one of the most stupid and facile things that's ever been said, it seems to me. So I know all that, and I take Heidegger's point. Heidegger wrote a brilliant essay about technology, in which he said the point about technology is not that it's a tool, but that it provides a kind of framework for our lives in which we all become a kind of standing reserve always at the ready to be called into action by a system. So I know all that. And I know that empathy is critical. And I know that names are critical to empathy and that names are vital social innovations. Because the kind of cooperation that we engage in depends on names. Because if you're just engaged in tit for tat, you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back cooperation, then you just need a face or a smell or to recognize someone. But if you want to engage in complex co cooperation over large distances and long times, you need a name because you need a reputation. So I know that. But 
it seems to me that if namism were taken to its extreme, we would live in societies that we would find intolerable. And to understand that, you just need to go to Pakistan. Because Pakistan should be on the cusp of some huge renaissance. It's got 20 million, 200 million people, 65% of them under the age of 25. A society that young and vibrant should be exploding with ideas and growth. And it's not, and it's not because of names. Because in Pakistan, if you're called Bhutto or Sharif, you're made. If you've got a name which belongs to one of the 70 families that's run Pakistan since 1947, then you treat the state as your kind of trough from which you take resources to feed your families. If you're one of the other millions of families that don't share one of those names, you're lost. So what's happened in those places, and there are many, many more places that are more like Pakistan than Britain or Europe, What's happened in those places over the last 10 years, the big hopeful transformation, is that roughly speaking, 250 million people a year have got a number. And by getting a number, a mobile phone number, they hope that they can change their lives, just in small ways. Because to get a number means that you can renegotiate your identity. You can loosen some of the bonds of where you came from, the family you belong to, your background, you could possibly find more information, get educated, get a health service, connect with other people, transfer money, all sorts of things suddenly open up. So getting a number for millions of people in the last 10 years has been one of the most important developments in their lives because it means they count in a way that their names would never count ever. And the importance of all this technology that we've been talking about is that culture changes politics, it changes how people see things. And this technology changes culture, it changes what people expect, how they expect to be treated, what voice they expect, their right to be able to identify, mobilise, find out, share, all of that gets changed by this technology. So I don't want Albra to be the place, and I'm aware that by saying this I sound desperately as if I've been planted here by Vodafone to make this point. <laughs> and paid, and sadly I haven't been paid at all, not yet anyway, um, uh, and I don't want Aldborough to be the place where namism splits into splinters and factions, but it's worth remembering in our pursuit of the name that under some conditions a society run by names is a form of tyranny and numbers can be freedom. That was the Names Not Numbers podcast. There are many more on namesnotnumbers.com. Thank you for listening.